good to see each of you on this holiday weekend, uh, even as many of the familiar faces are gone. The Lord has met with us again today to minister to us in our need. He is able to overcome any burden or any distraction that you may have brought here with you this morning. He is certainly able to overcome our sin that Christ has conquered in our place and on our behalf. Let's go to the Lord now uh, and ask him for his help. He is an utterly faithful God. He is always faithful to us. We are now called by his name in his son. So let's ask him for his help as we look to the Bible. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come to you and we do ask that you would come and minister to us as we now look to your word. We know that we are insufficient for anything of eternal value. We are insufficient on our own to look to your word and understand it, to look to your word and love what it says. And so we pray, God, that you would come. We pray for you to minister to us, that you would show us yourself in your word, that you would show us ourselves and that you would show us Christ above all. We pray that we would see him and that in beholding him, we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another. We pray that in beholding Christ, we would be satisfied in him and that we would look to nothing or no one else. We pray that we would treasure him. We pray that as we behold Christ, that you would comfort us because he and he alone is our peace. So we pray for you to come and do these things, teach us these things, and work these things in us, we pray. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, happy Thanksgiving to you. I hope that you've had good time with family, with friends, with loved ones in recent days. As we give thanks to God for many things, I trust many of us also are mindful of things that we need, things that we want things that we desire for ourselves and even for our world. Peace is one of those things. Peace is a good thing. Peace of mind. Peace in our hearts. Peace with one another. Peace in the world. And peace before God. We desire peace, and we should. But peace, if it is found at all, is often quite fleeting in this fallen world. How is it then that we might have peace that is not fleeting? How is it that we would have peace that is real and that is lasting? It's an important question. And not to bury the lead, it will not be through something that we accomplish. We will not have real and lasting peace through something that we do. We are not able to pull that off. It will only be through the one who is called the Prince of Peace that we will have real and lasting peace. It will be through the one who bids us to come to him that we might find rest for our souls. Jesus is our peace. That is the title of today's sermon. It comes right from one of the verses in our sermon text this morning. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do, open them up to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we will be putting the verses to the sermon text on the screen behind me, and you will be able to follow along with us that way. We're going to be considering this morning Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. But for context, I'm going to begin reading in verse 11 and read through the end of verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 2. So before we go any further, I'm going to read God's word for us. This is the word of God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Amen. We thank God for his word. Ephesians 2, 14 to 18 summed up is this. Jesus himself is our peace. He accomplished it, verses 14 to 16. And he proclaimed it, verses 17 to 18. Jesus himself is our peace. He accomplished it. He proclaimed it. So I have three points for us this morning. Point one will be that Jesus has accomplished our peace. Point two, that Jesus proclaimed peace. And then point three is a reflection on the fact that Jesus himself is our peace. It's a very simple plan. We pray for the Lord's blessing upon our time. Point number one, Jesus accomplished peace. Jesus accomplished peace. We're going to look at verses 14 to 16. Jesus has done two massively significant things. He has reconciled the people of God to one another, and he has reconciled all of us to God. He's reconciled the people of God to one another, that horizontal level, and at a vertical level, he has reconciled all of us to God. You can see in the second part of verse 14, where Paul uses the language, Jesus has made us both one. What's he talking about? When he says us both, he means two groups of people. Namely, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Jews would have been the Israelites. Most in the room will know that. Gentiles would have been people of any other nation or of any other ethnicity. And Paul is saying that Jesus, through what he did, has made Jews and Gentiles one. There at the very end, the last part of verse 14, we see that he has torn down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles. There was a division between these two groups of people until Christ came. Paul is referring to a couple of things, I think, in using this language of the dividing wall. In the temple courts, the temple in Jerusalem where God dwelled, there was a literal wall, a physical wall that divided Gentiles and Jews. There was only a certain area of the temple complex where Gentiles were allowed to be. Gentiles were excluded from the inner courts of the temple where sacrifices for sin were made. I think that is at least in part in Paul's mind. There's this literal wall that separated Jews and Gentiles, and that has come down. And also there is a metaphorical wall. There was a metaphorical wall that separated Gentiles and Jews. These two groups of people were distinct from one another. There are several reasons for that, but one of the reasons for that distinction is God's law that he gave to Israel. Part of the function of the law was to keep Israel separate and to keep Israel distinct from the surrounding pagan nations. And the law of God is in Paul's mind in terms of being an aspect of what separated Jews and Gentiles. We can see that as we look into verse 15. We see that Paul will say that Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Right, so just track with me for a moment. We're going to take a brief, like excursus might be the proper word. I don't even know. That sounds very academic, but it sounds appropriate. We're going to think together for just a minute about God's law. These things are important for our understanding so that we might better grasp what Paul is talking about in terms of what Jesus has done. Christians through history have understood that God's law had various components. It had various aspects to it. One of these components, one of the aspects of God's law is referred to as his moral law. God gave Adam, when he made him, a comprehensive law of obedience that he wrote on his heart. God also gave Adam a specific command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But that law that God gave to Adam that was written on the human heart from creation continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. Paul writes of this, even in Romans 5. 
how people were still dying. Even though the law had not been given yet to Moses, people were still dying from Adam to Moses. Why? Because there is this moral law of God, this law of creation that existed that man was not keeping. God then delivered this moral law to Moses on Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments, and they were written on two tablets of stone. This law, this moral law of God is transcendent. It reflects His character. There is a This law is binding on all people for all time. Now, for those of us who are in Christ, we are not under this moral law as a covenant of works. We are not condemned by it anymore. We don't earn righteousness by keeping it either. But even for us in Christ Jesus, though we're not under it as a covenant of works, this moral law of God guides our lives. That's one component of God's law, the moral component. There are also civil or judicial laws that God gave to Israel. This matters. Israel, we know, was a nation. It was a geopolitical entity. And so God gave Israel laws to govern the nation state of Israel. He dictated punishments for crimes as well as how civil disputes were to be handled. When the nation of Israel, as it was known, ended, these laws ceased. Christians have agreed on this for millennia. No one is obligated to these civil and judicial laws any longer as a part of the institution called Israel. At this point, the people of God now, the people of God are citizens of all kinds of nations, various nations all over the world. And at this point, the value in the civil judicial law that God gave Israel is seen in the general principles of justice that it contains. Third component of God's law is referred to as the ceremonial law. So you have moral, civil, and ceremonial law. The ceremonial laws contain various ordinances. Most notable of these was the sacrificial system. Also included would have been things like circumcision, the priesthood, special days, feasts, food laws, clothing laws, washings, and any other things pertaining to worship and conduct. All of these had to do with cleanness before God. To keep them would keep a person ceremonially clean. To break them would make a person ceremonially unclean. And then there were measures that had to be taken to become clean again. So God had given Israel all of these various kinds of laws. Look now back to our text. Again, in verse 15 says that Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law ordinances. Paul is talking in that specific place about that ceremonial law that we just considered. With the coming of Jesus, the ceremonial laws, everything related to the sacrificial system and days and feasts and food and clothing and all of these cleansings and washings and the like, that made Israel unique from the Gentiles. All of those ceremonial laws that were unique to the Jews ceased to be something that separated Jews and Gentiles once Christ came. How so? How so? How is it that these ceremonial laws go away? The ceremonial laws find their end in Christ because the point of those laws all along was to point to the Christ who would come and fulfill them. When Jesus came and accomplished His work, He took, he, to use the language of Paul, He abolished these laws, these ceremonial laws of commandments expressed in ordinances with His finished work in the place of sinners. These ceremonial laws were only a type and a shadow. You don't need me to tell you, though, that these ceremonial laws, though they were types and shadows, were understood by Jews to be very significant in terms of their identity, in terms of how they were distinct from the rest of the world. Think about the debates that are contained even in the New Testament about things like circumcision and things like food and what should be eaten or not consumed. Think about the ink that is spilled on special days and feasts and whether those things need to be kept. This was still a big deal in the minds of many, even in the early days of 
the church. But Christ, when He came, fulfilled these laws and He ultimately accomplished what they were pointing to. They served their purpose in their immediate context, but their ultimate purpose was to point to Jesus and further reveal Him and His work. One of the best places that we can go in all of the Bible to understand things like this is the book of Hebrews. If you haven't spent time in the book of Hebrews lately, it might be a good book for you to read sometime because there's just all kind of stuff that helps us see how Christ really is the fulfillment of everything that came before him. How everything that is revealed in the Old Testament, which is a lot, ultimately finds its yes and its amen and its accomplishment in Christ. For example, listen to these words from Hebrews 8. This is talking about the tabernacle, right? The place where God dwelt, the tent that the Israelites built for God to live in. The writer of the Hebrews, they serve a copy as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old covenant because he mediates a better one since it is enacted on better promises. Or consider these words from Hebrews 9. Think about the priesthood and the sacrificial system and everything entailed in these laws of commandments expressed in ordinances. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Then Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. He's saying that the sacrifices could never make perfect those who draw near. Because if they could, they would not have needed to be offered all the time. He goes on, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what were they about? Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said that, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, those offered according to the law, he then added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He, Jesus, does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Point being, through Christ and what he did, his work of redemption, Jesus has fulfilled and ended the entirety of the ceremonial law for his people. This is why we no longer offer sacrifices. This is why we no longer observe food laws. This is why you wear polyester. This is why, right, we don't observe feasts and days and the like because Jesus Christ fulfilled these things. And in the mind of Paul, Christ's fulfilling of these things is massively significant when it comes to the unity of Jews and Gentiles when it comes to the unity of all of the people of God under Christ. There are no longer these things that were uniquely Jewish that divide the people of God anymore. All of the people of God now are in Christ Jesus. Put your eyes back on verse 15 of Ephesians 2. So we see that Jesus has torn down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What's the purpose? So that... He might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. 
he might create one new man in place of the two. Theologians of old used to say that Jesus had created a third race of people. By a third race of people, they meant neither Jew nor Gentile, but in Christ, this new creation, this new race is what Jesus had created. This one new man, to use the language of Paul, is representative of all the people of God who are all in Christ. We all, regardless of whether we're Jewish or Gentile, regardless of ethnicity or anything about us, we all have one new shared identity in Christ. We have put off the old man and we have put on Jesus. This is very much like the language of Paul in other places. For example, in Colossians 3, he says this, Here, in Christ, as we have put off the old man and put on Jesus, here there is not Greek and Jew. There is not circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. There's none of that. But Christ is all and in all. Or Galatians chapter 3, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 27 and 28. All right, so the point of all of that, the point of everything, this unity of God's people, how these old things are no longer our identity, but our new identity is that of being in Christ and we all share it. The point of that is not that all distinctions amongst people go away. That now, somehow, we're all just the same. Like monolithic. That's not what it means. The point, though, is that distinctions amongst human beings in Christ Jesus no longer divide us. The point is that we have unity in Christ that transcends and trumps any earthly or human distinction. That's the point. The first and greatest thing that must be said about any of us is that we are in Christ. That is the most fundamental, significant piece of our identity. And Christ has torn down everything that divides us. Jesus himself is our peace with one another as the people of God. So this has all kinds of implications for our relationships in the church. We can't, we want to love our neighbor well and love those who are not in the church. Amen. We should. But when it comes to this language of unity in Christ Jesus, we are considering the church specifically. Our relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ. Real peace, real unity, real love, all of those things are possible because Christ has secured it. He's done this. He's torn down every dividing wall. So in in the church, in our relationships, we do not ignore the distinctions that exist amongst us. Far from it. We shouldn't diminish distinction. Instead, celebrate the unity that we have in diversity. We celebrate the unity that we have in being male and female. We celebrate the unity that we have in Christ still being white and black and red and brown and yellow. Why would we ever diminish such things? God has always determined to save a people from every tribe and language and nation. To diminish the things that us would actually rob God of glory and joy, but what we do is celebrate the unity that transcends any barrier of gender, sex, race, because Christ has torn down the dividing wall. And as we celebrate the unity that we have in diversity, we seek sincerely to love each other. And we humbly seek to understand one another. The longer I'm on earth and the more I continue to engage in relationships of various kinds, I'm convinced that perhaps the most significant thing that we can do in meaningful relationships is to humbly seek to understand the other person. 
That's true in marriage. It's true in parenting. It's true in friendships. It's true in the church. It's especially important when you're dealing with people who are quite different from you. And we're all different from each other. We're wired differently. We think differently. We've had different experiences. Instead of allowing those things to divide us in Christ Jesus, we can humbly and lovingly seek understanding. Continuing to think about the fact that Jesus has accomplished peace, let's get more now to this vertical dimension that we see in verse 16. We see that he has also reconciled all of the people of God to God in one body through the cross. Because of our sin, we were alienated from God. We rightly stood accused and condemned before the Holy One who made us. Through the shedding of His blood, though, Jesus has put an end to our alienation and has put an end to our condemnation. And we have, as Paul said in Ephesians 1.7, we have redemption through Christ's blood. We are the ones, to use the language of Revelation 7, who have washed our robes in the blood of the Lamb and have made them white. This is important in the scope of what Paul is saying. This is true for Gentiles, and it is true for Jews. It's very clear in how he says that. In that Christ might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. There is some thinking that exists that Israel was somehow saved in a different way than other people were saved. Not true biblically. Through the work of Christ and Christ alone, all of the people of God from all time are saved. The name of Jesus is the only name under heaven by which men have salvation, Acts 4.12. Jesus has accomplished our peace with one another. He's accomplished our peace before God. We're going to come back later and think more about the fact that Jesus is our peace, but for now we're going to move on to point two, which will be briefer than number one. Point two is Jesus proclaimed peace. So not only did He accomplish it, Jesus proclaimed peace. We're going to look at verses 17 and 18. You can put your eyes on verse 17 and see that Paul writes this, that Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far off. Well, who's that? That's the Gentiles, right? He came and preached peace to Gentiles and peace to those who were near. Who's that? Jews. He came and preached the same message of peace to all. The prophet Isaiah wrote of how the Lord would restore the contrite of heart. The prophet wrote of how God would heal the lowly in Isaiah 57, where he writes these words, Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. With the coming of the Lord Jesus and the proclamation of the gospel, those words of Isaiah find their fulfillment. The Lord would heal the broken and contrite. The Lord would proclaim peace to the far and to the near and would heal them. He would do that through His Son. Jesus came proclaiming rest for the weary. Jesus came proclaiming healing for the sick. Jesus came proclaiming righteousness for sinners. And now, His church proclaims that same message to the ends of the earth. Sometimes, I know we know this, but sometimes it's just good to be reminded of this reality. That the news that we have is the greatest news in the world. Sometimes I think in a culture like ours that is becoming increasingly antagonistic toward Christianity, I think it's easy for us to maybe feel self-conscious. It's easy for us to feel anxious in our social interaction. It can be even at some points be easy enough for us in our frailty to be embarrassed by the gospel and by the truth of God's word because we know it offends. But may we never lose sight of this reality that the message that we herald is a message of peace. It is a message of rest for the weary. It is a message of righteousness for sinners and of healing for the sick. This is good news. 
Ours is a message not only of righteousness for sinners, but of righteousness accomplished and given. Given, not earned. It's a message of salvation accomplished and given freely. Ours is a message of peace in a restless and a ruthless world. We invite people to come and drink of the water of life without payment. We invite the weary and the heavy laden to come and find rest for their souls. And they want it. We all do. Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far and to those who were near. And Paul goes on in verse 18 to remind us that through Jesus, we both, again, Jew and Gentile, we both us in one spirit to the Father. So we have all of the people of God, Jew and Gentile, who have the same access in one spirit to the Father. The fact that we have access at all to God is astonishing given that we're sinners. So much of the Old Testament, you know, in terms of how even the the people of Israel were situated in the camp, you know, they were a migrating people. And as the camp was established all the time, there were basically these concentric circles of cleanness and holiness. God is in the middle and the holy of holies, the most holy place. Outside of that, you had the holy place. And then outside of that, you had the camp further expanding, right? And the holy of holies where God dwelt could only be entered once a year by the high priest. God was making it clear that because of our sin, we do not have access to him on our own. So it's astonishing that through what Christ has done, we all have access to God. And it's also wonderful that we all share the same access in the one spirit the Holy Spirit of God. Paul tells us that we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We no longer, as the people of God, relate to God on the basis of fear. We no longer relate to Him on the basis of slavery. But because of Christ and because of the grace of God, Through the Spirit, we relate to God on the basis of love and adoption. All of the people of God do. So let's move on now to our third point, which is where we'll spend the rest of our time in reflecting together on the fact that Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace. I have a few sub points here. I'll try to make them as clear as I can. Hopefully we can track together and we pray that we will be encouraged in the Lord Jesus on this Thanksgiving weekend. First thing for us to consider is the fact that Jesus is our peace now and forever. That matters. So Jesus is our peace today. Amen. And Jesus is our peace forever. The peace that we have with God through Jesus is ours now, and it will also be ours for eternity. I don't know about you, but that matters for me. I don't so much care about the fact that Jesus is my peace today if that peace can be lost somehow. If that peace can be lost, we may as well leave because we're wasting our time. But as it stands, the peace that we have before God is unshakable because Christ is unshakable and He has accomplished it for us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn in in, in them to Romans 5. We're going to spend a little bit of time there in the first verses of Romans 5. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture. If you don't turn there, it'll be totally fine. I'm going to read and talk, which is kind of what I do during this time anyway, right? Romans chapter 5, beginning in verses 1 and 2, we see that Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have been declared righteous by faith in Christ through what He has done, not by what we have done. Because that's true, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Full stop. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's a very future-looking phrase. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ because of what He's done. We now have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The glory of God that will be revealed when? 
consummatively when the creation is freed from its groaning. When Christ returns and all things are made right. We're hoping in that. Why? Because we know we're safe. Verses 6 to 8, you can skip down. Romans 5, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Some good news. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verses 9 and 10. Since, therefore, because verses 6 to 8 are true, since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So if verses 6 to 8 are true, how much more so now that we've been justified will we be finally saved? If verses 6 to 8 are true, how much more so now that we've been reconciled to God will we be finally saved? The reasoning goes this way. We were Christ's enemies. There was animosity between us and Christ, and He died for us then. Will He now turn us away now that we love Him? And now that we trust him, if he died for you when you were his enemy, how much more secure are you now that you love and trust him? The logic goes this way. When we were strangers and orphans, God loved us. Will he abandon us now that we are his adopted children? If God loved you when you were a stranger, and if God loved you when you were an orphan, how much more so? Will he unrelentingly and unshakably love you now that he's adopted you? Or this, we used to sin and we didn't care. Amen? We used to sin and we didn't care. And Christ, when we were still that, suffered and bled and died for us. And now, because we are in Christ, we are actually grieved by the thought of offending him. If he died for us before, when we sinned and didn't care, will he actually now cast us out now that we desire to please him? No way. No way. If Christ did what he did when we were his enemies, if God loved us as he did when we were orphans and strangers and hostile to him, how much more so now will we be finally saved now that we've been adopted, now that we are known, and now that we are loved by God? Jesus is our peace. Next sort of subheading. Nothing we do can bring us peace. Nothing we do can bring us peace. You will do well, and so would I, to wrap our minds and hearts around that reality. We'll spend the rest of our lives trying to wrap our minds and hearts around that. May God give us grace to do it. Because we are so prone to think that how Jesus feels about us is tethered to how we're doing. We are so prone to think that, okay, I've got peace with God because I'm doing well. When I'm not doing so good, not sure. It's how we feel. Christians, friends, take comfort in this. Christians have been fighting this same battle for 2,000 years. There's nothing new under the sun. The fundamental battle of the Christian life has always been to continue to believe that Jesus and what he has done for us really is enough to save. I've read this before here. I'll probably end up reading this anecdote inevitably once a year for as long as I'm alive. And you'll bear with me and because you love me, and I pray that you're edified every time it's read in this assembly. To give you an illustration of how this has always been a battle for believers, I'm going to read you an anecdote from over 150 years ago. Now, granted, it's only 150 years, but it was a different time. The struggle was still the same. This is from a little book by Horatius Bonar called God's Way of Peace. 
He writes this, I knew an awakened soul who in the bitterness of his spirit thus set himself to work and pray in order to get peace. He doubled the amount of his devotions, saying to himself, surely God will give me peace. That sounds familiar. But the peace didn't come. He set up family worship. That's been happening for a while. Saying, surely God will give me peace. But the peace came not. At last, he bethought himself of having a prayer meeting in his house, a certain remedy. God will be pleased with that, right? He fixed the night. He called his neighbors and prepared himself for conducting the meeting by writing a prayer and learning it by heart. As he finished the operation of learning it, preparatory to the meeting, he threw it down on the table saying, surely that will do. God will give me peace now. Sounds just like us. In that moment, a still small voice seemed to speak in his ear saying, no, that will not do, but Christ will do. Straight away, the scales fell from his eyes and the burden from his shoulders. Peace poured in like a river. Christ will do was his watchword for life. Amen. Brothers and sisters, Jesus and Jesus alone is our peace. Not our effort, not our performance, not abstinence from sin, not our affections, Jesus. It is the infinite merit of Christ that is the basis of our relationship with God, now and always. Not the labors of my hands, right? Can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. It's a good song. Not our works, not the labors of our hands. We can't work to atone for sin. We can't work for peace before the Lord. Not even unrelenting zeal could do that. If my passion for God and my feelings for Christ would never wane, wouldn't matter. Could not achieve peace. Not even continual, never ceasing remorse for sin. If I was always absolutely contrite and brokenhearted as the day is long over my sin and that never left me, could never give me peace, could never atone for sin. Only Christ, only what He has done, His perfect life, His righteousness that's ours by faith, His death, His blood that was poured out making atonement for sin, His blood that was poured out making satisfaction for sin, His resurrection, it was a validation of everything that he had done that secured the fact that you will get up from the dead and so will I. These things stand. This work of Jesus stands. It stands outside of us. That matters a ton. We talk like this a lot, but why do we? It's biblical. Right? That what Jesus accomplished is. It exists. It stands on its own outside of us, unaffected by how we feel, unaffected by how we're doing, what Jesus did stands in our place always, unshakable. It's why we call him the solid rock, because he's not going anywhere, and what he did is not going away. Only Christ and his love for us can give us peace, not our love for him, his love for us never ceases. His love for us is never deterred by the waxing and the waning of our hearts. This is good news for sinners who feel all kinds of ways in any given day or any given week. We may, in our good moments, be filled with affection for Christ, praise God. In our good moments, we may see him clearly. It's like, man, that mirror is not as dim right now. I feel like I'm seeing Christ. Praise the Lord when those moments come. But there are other moments where we lose sight of Christ. And we rejoice 
And we find comfort and peace in the fact that when we lose sight of Him, He doesn't lose sight of us. We may at points not be holding on to Him, but He never lets go of us. We know that He ever lives and pleads for us and that He pleads the merits of His blood in our place. The words of Christ over the ones He loves are always righteous, loved, secure. So not only is Jesus our peace now and forever, not only is there not anything we can do to give ourselves peace, bringing this kind of back down to the corporate human level, a collective sense of Jesus being our peace, basically a collective sense of Ephesians 1 and 2, more or less, unites us together in love and gratitude and humility. How does doctrine drive culture in a church? It has everything to do with the culture in a church. It has everything to do with how we relate to each other. A collective sense of the fact that Christ alone is our peace. A collective sense of what He has done for us and how secure we are in Him because of Him alone unites us together in love for one another. It unites us together in gratitude and humility. We all understand that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were lost and blind and slaves to Satan and slaves to our passions. We all understand that we still are the foremost of sinners, sin-sick wretches who are in desperate need of Christ and the grace of God all the time. We all understand that there is nothing in us that could ever move God to save us. There's nothing in us that would ever move God to love us. We understand that the salvation of every single individual in the church is to the praise of God's glorious grace. We understand that the salvation of this people, the church, has always been God's plan. And so when we look around at one another, we don't do this ridiculous thing of comparing each other and measuring one another up. Who's better? Well, doesn't so much matter, right? Because we, none of us have ground on which to boast. Salvation is a gift of God from beginning to end, not of works. It's by faith so that no one may boast. We don't compare one another, compare ourselves to one another. We don't measure ourselves up thinking, well, you know, there's something more lovable about me or there's something more worthy about me because none of us are worthy and we know that. We all together are debtors to grace and we all together have been showered with the love and mercy of God in Christ. And it knits hearts together. We together gather so that we might have Christ held out to us. We together rejoice and praise the Lord because of what He's done for us, not because of what we've contributed. And as we think this way, as we read God's Word, we better understand the roles that we play in one another's lives. Far from other people being around me so that I can make myself feel better about me, other people exist around me because I need them. I need the church in my pilgrimage to the heavenly city. We need each other to walk this life together. We need each other because we've got burdens to bear, and they're too heavy to bear by ourselves. We need each other because there are times when weeping is the order of the day and we weep together. There are times when rejoicing is the order of the day and we rejoice together. We need each other to herald the gospel to and over one another. We like to use this language of preaching the gospel to ourselves, and I know what we mean, but we're not that great at doing it. Let's be real. We're not very good at preaching the gospel to ourselves when we are really struggling and when we are really in the midst of despair. What do you need when you're at the bottom? You need your brothers and sisters to come alongside you and preach the gospel to you, to remind you of what Christ has done for you. When you could never get there yourself, we need each other. There is no bond like the bond that we have in Christ. And God has made it that way. Friends, on this Thanksgiving weekend, I'm going to leave you with this. 
At one point, we were all strangers and orphans. But in Christ, we've been adopted by our Heavenly Father. When people were adopted in the context of the first century, like when Paul wrote that language of adoption, it entailed a lot of stuff. But at a minimum, it would have, it would have entailed a new status for the adopted. And you have that. You have a new status. You are justified in Christ. Being adopted entails a new name, a new identity. You have that. You are in Christ Jesus now. And being adopted meant that you would get an inheritance. You weren't going to have one before, but you have one now that you're adopted, and you do. You have an inheritance that's unshakable, that's imperishable and incorruptible, that Christ has secured for you. We have been cleansed. We all have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Our sin has been buried with Christ in the waters of baptism. And we have been given Christ's own righteousness. And so we have peace. That, on this Thanksgiving weekend, is something to be thankful for. Let's pray. Father, we come to you acknowledging that our hearts are often cold and sluggish that we can often be full of doubts and wrestlings and fears. God, we pray quite simply that you, because of Christ and for his sake, would overcome those things. We pray that you would sustain us in the faith, that you would strengthen and confirm our faith in your son this morning. Give us eyes to see with great clarity what Jesus has accomplished for us. And we pray that we would know and feel the peace that he has secured for us. Father, we pray that you would use everything that we've done in this service to that end. And we pray that you would use the table as we come to it in just a moment to that end. Remind us of what Christ has done for us. Comfort the weary. Comfort the fearful. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.